I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Levin. I'm a grief therapist and the founder of From Grief to Growth, the host of the podcast Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death, and I'm the creator and author of the Growing After Traumatic Loss course. I provide support, guidance, and teachings to help you with the aftermath of chaos, trauma, and grief. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. In today's podcast, I interview Michelle Post, who is a grief therapist who also specializes in traumatic loss. We talk about how she got started in the field and the influence of her mentor, Dr. William Warden, who wrote The Tasks of Greedy, The Tasks of Grieving. She talks about her personal experiences with sudden and anticipated death and how they have impacted her professionally and personally. Michelle, welcome. I am so delighted to have you here with us uh, today. So let me start off by asking you, um, how did you get into the field of grief therapy? Uh, thank, thank you, first of all, Jen, for having me. And uh, it's it's so nice to see you, even though our audience won't see our faces. Um, so yeah, I, I think early in my career, it must have been 2000, I was working in a chronic pain clinic with cancer, heart disease, and a lot of workers' comp injury patients. And part of my treatment plan at the time was doing a grief and loss timeline intervention, right? Assuming that when you can't work or you have some sort of disability going on, you have losses. But what was really weird is I started to anecdotally see this strong connection with grief and loss at an early age, childhood, teenage years, young adult that had totally gone unaddressed and unprocessed for my clients whose bodies were now no longer healing you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years later. And honestly, I was debating about whether I really wanted to do chronic pain work forever <laughs> or if I wanted to move in another direction. And there was this one story of one of my clients that pretty much moved me to tears and inspired my shift in direction. She was a woman in her 60s, retired early from teaching due to a chronic back issue. And she, in her grief and loss timeline, I noticed that at age five, which would have been like around late 1940s or 1950s, something like that, her dad had died. So I asked her about it and she said, well, he had an allergic reaction to medication. And um, when the emergency medical people arrived, he must have been trying to distract me or something because he said, you know, sweetheart, will you play that song on the piano that you're learning? And all I could think to say was, dad, I can't, I'm scared. And then they're putting him on the stretcher and kind of wheeling him out of the house. And he asked again, honey, will you play that song on the piano? And she said, I can't, dad, I'm scared. Like it was too many people and she's shy. And they took him away in the ambulance and he died on the way to the hospital. Hmm. And then she takes this long kind of pregnant pause and slows down. And she says, 
sometimes I wonder if I had just played that song on the piano, would he relax and maybe his blood wouldn't have pumped through his heart so fast and maybe he could have made it to the hospital in time for treatment and maybe it's my fault. Maybe I killed my dad. Wow. Okay. And yeah. Wow. I gulped, right? Because I'm like young and wet behind the ears, brand new in the field. And the only thing I could think to ask was, who else have you shared this with before? And here's the other gasp. Uh, she says, no one. Like mm. no one said anything to me. I was just a little kid. The photos came down off the walls. No one took me to a funeral. My mom had a nervous breakdown. My siblings were older and distant. And basically the only place I could get attention was at school. And so I did really well in school and then became a teacher. And just as a reminder, this is a woman in her 60s still carrying on this story. And I'm the first person she's told in like 50, 55, 60 years. And so it was then that I decided I really wanted to work with people, uh, be it parents or families or young adults, and, and work closer to the time when the death happens in hopes that might prevent their body from wreaking havoc on them later from unprocessed grief and trauma. And, it, and basically, it just inspired my whole shift in my career. That's an amazing story. I know. It's just... It's still sometimes like I can't always tell the story without crying. Hmm. I did it today, but so, sometimes I just go right back to that young therapist that was blown away by this woman trusting me with her story. And, and sometimes that's how it happens. Even today, I'll get someone in who's like 30 years from the time of death in my private practice. It's not always that I see them right away, but right. someone has noticed that there's a barrier in their life and suggested therapy you know, and, uh, and that's really powerful work, even doing the work long range. Right. Uh, because again, I hope that that mind body connection can be repaired. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that most of your work right now is with sudden and unexpected loss. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the type of clients you work with and the approach that you take when you work with clients who mm -hmm. have experienced a sudden death? Uh, yeah, uh, so it, it's pretty broad in that all my practice is online now. So I don't work with the youngest, youngest children anymore since the pandemic. But other than that, I work with individuals or couples or families or teens or young adults. So 10 years old, if they're verbal and can handle a little more Zoom in their life. <laughs> you know, I, I can work with them, but um, it's just not the best for little kids who really need some play, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's all, all kinds of deaths, so illness, accidents, homicide, suicide. And basically, I use my mentor is Jay William Warden, and he just turned 90. Wow. And uh, he, he wrote a book, one of the first books in the field, Grief Counseling and Grief Therapy, uh, which is on its fifth edition. And he has a four task model of grief and loss. So it's kind of my basic guide along with cognitive behavioral therapy and gestalt techniques, depending on the client and what feels comfortable to the client. But I, I do usually explain the four task model of grief and loss and ask people what they think about it, because 
um, many people have heard of the Kubler-Ross five stages, the DABDA, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Mm -hmm. And many of my clients have come to me over the years and complained about someone saying, oh, you're in the denial phase. Oh, you're in the anger phase, you know, and it doesn't feel like a fit for them. And most of my clients will say that um, in general, the four task model seems to give them a sense of what they're going through. Okay. Yeah. Can you give us just an overview of the four tasks? Oh, of the four tasks? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So the first task is um, accepting the reality that the person has died, which, you know, comes and goes over the years. It's not just first few months of a death, right? You can have a, a good thing happen in your life and want to pick up the phone to, to call your loved one and realize again, oh, I can't call them. And that can happen over the lifespan. And then there's processing the pain of the death, which is all the thoughts and feelings and emotions connected to the death of someone close. And the third is adjusting to life without that person living. And that's everything from who am I if my only child dies? Am I still a parent? You know, am I, am I still married if my spouse died? It's all that stuff. And it's also the actual tasks. Who's going to make me my lunch? Uh, she was the accountant person in our family. I don't know where all the bills are kept. I don't know how to balance the checkbook. Like it's all of those kind of task adjustments and figuring out which tasks can I learn and which ones do I need to farm out or hire someone to help me with? And then the internal process of who am I now that this person has died? That's the third task. And then the fourth task has changed its wording over the years. But right now it's it's something like um, finding ways to remember the person who died mm -hmm. while continuing on life's journey. So it's not a pack up the photos and never talk about them again. It's uh, finding ways to incorporate your connection and your bond with them, your continuing bond with them over the lifespan, acknowledging the meaning that they've had in your life while still loving yourself, taking care of yourself, honoring and taking care of the other people in your life that you love, continuing on with your own life. So, and, and it's not meant to be one, two, three, four, and you're done. Mm -hmm. They circle around and sometimes you're processing more than one task at the same time, or an activator can happen in your life. Like one of my clients whose dad died at age five, when she got married, Again, she was adjusting to the reality that someone else had to walk her down the line, the aisle. She had to figure out who was going to walk her down the aisle. She had pain that she was processing around not having her dad there for that important occasion. And then she carried a photo of him in her on, on her chest inside of her dress as a way to remember him on that special day. And they gave toasts to him at the reception. So it was all four tasks wrapped up in that same life event, uh, you know, 30 years after her dad had died. Great. I love Dr. Uh, Warden's model. So um, <laughs> thank you for, for sure. describing that to, to everyone. Sure. <laughs> You've also had personal experience with um, sudden death. And yes. Would you mind sharing that? story with and the impact it's had on your career as well. Yeah. I mean, I being a member of several communities, I've had a lot of sudden death in my life, but the one that probably had the most impact was when my uncle died. I was an undergraduate at UCLA and he had had um, 
psychological break and he died by suicide. And my own, his only child, my cousin, found him. Uh, and it pretty much rocked our whole family to the core. Many people having struggles with mental illness as a concept and feeling like you could pray it away and heavy, heavy religious family and kind of shook that all to the core. And I would say, you know, as a young undergraduate studying psychology, I I didn't consciously think that it had any impact on my career. And certainly when I decided to go back to grad school and become a marriage and family therapist, I wanted to do couples work and relational work. I wasn't consciously aiming towards grief. But then once I got into grief and loss, I had a lot of ties to training people in suicide prevention, getting a lot of the training myself, working with suicide survivors and people who were grieving a death by suicide. And I just have to say lived experience is such a powerful teacher, even if my clients don't know that I've had a personal experience with suicide death, I think they feel felt. Hmm. I think they feel that I get it without judgment. Hmm. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's how my uncle and, and I continue, you know, now that I have this concept of remembering and continuing on, I continue to honor my uncle at the time of his death every year. Wow. So, wow. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. And I know on top of that, you also recently experienced the death of your father. And I'm curious what that was like for you to be a therapist, helping your clients grieve the death of their loved one while you were experiencing a deep loss yourself. Yeah. Ooh, it's a, that's a doozy question. Um, in all honesty, at times, it was really helpful for me as a therapist to go offline on my own personal experiences and feel like I was still able to be of service to other people. Hmm. That was one part of me. And then at other times, it was really taxing to balance all the stuff going on in the background with my dad dying. He was within three months of his diagnosis of cancer, he died. Wow. And um, we were with him the last week of his life. And I was seeing clients because I didn't know how long he was going to live. So it was really taxing to then go between these moments of crises in my family and then go be of service to another person and kind of compartmentalize it. And it was also in the middle of the pandemic. It was mm -hmm. summer, fall 2021. So the hardest part as a therapist was when a client was processing through some of the same feelings and experiences and pain that I was going through, particularly the complications of COVID and trying to see your loved one in the hospital when maybe you were limited or the complications when you were planning a funeral or memorial service, like will people be able to come or not? And we had, we had both experiences. So our funeral was in Southern California and some some of our friends and family were comfortable coming. Others lived in Canada, couldn't get out of the country to come. And so we felt both the comfort of, we were able to allow people to watch online the funeral. So we had this sense of like local community and then people watching from afar and feeling the support. 
But then because of my dad's burial wishes, there was an outbreak in Eastern Canada. And we moved from planning a whole other memorial service for people that couldn't leave the country and could be there to the memorial service to, oh, you know, it can be inside with an officiant. Oh, no, now it's got to be outside with an officiant. Everybody masked up to no one can come into the county if you don't already live in the county without permission from the provincial government. (laughs) And so it ended up being a burial with just me, my mother, my brother, and his wife, no officiant. And we all had to get provincial permission to go there and bury my dad. So we felt that pain of having this tremendous life experience without anyone else around. It was very isolating and sad. And I've had many, and then we had two other uncles die in the last five months of 2021. So, you know, there were other family members that experienced what we experienced, that tug and pull of having people there and not there. And it was, it was really hard to go through that and then run home to my Airbnb and see a few clients and then then run back out and help my mother establish her. So we had to move my mom into assisted living um, because my dad was her caretaker. So it was like all this stuff going on. And then you need to like shut up and listen to other people tell their story. But again, I guess I just felt like, okay, even if I'm not talking about what's going on with me, I think they can feel how much I'm empathizing with them. Hmm. I think they can sense that my lived experience is right there with them through what they're going through. It took a lot of inner strength to be able to hold space for others. Yes. And hold space for your own feelings at the same yes. time. And I'm still recovering from that. I still have, a, I have a smaller practice now and I have a lot of downtime for self-care because um, it was just, it was like three things at once you were always doing in those four or five months from diagnosis to burial. Yeah. I'm glad you um, brought up the self-care. Some of the very first ways that I began to interact with you was through some of your self-care workshops and you've been a proponent of self-care for as long as I've known yes. you. Yes. Uh, talk to us about um, some of your own self-care practices. Okay. Okay. Well, so back at the chronic pain clinic, that's where I started learning stress management techniques and self-care techniques because it's so important for that mind-body connection and healing, right? So I, and I also don't believe in asking my clients to do anything that I don't do myself. Good for you. So um, my own self-care is that periodically, including right now, I enter my own therapy with a practitioner that fits for me. And I also, on top of that, have a spiritual coach that I meet with here and there. I do a lot of free flow journaling just with a timer. And I do massage therapy and a lot of personal growth reading and podcasts and, and then like your regular healthcare treatment and your dentist and all that. Cause you know, there's physical self-care, right? And then I clean my house. That's um, also environmental self-care, right? Okay. Cause I, okay. I do better when my house is organized. Okay. Um, and, and then 
physical self-care is also walking and hiking in nature. I don't live very far from the beach, so I like to do some walking on the beach or there's beautiful hiking trails very nearby. And periodically, I, I don't have the most consistent meditation practice, but I, I do have a meditation practice and do some self-hypnosis and I make sure I have plenty of time to sleep, even if my body doesn't allow me to use all the time for sleep, because I'm at that age where insomnia and hormones are <laughs> battling with me. Um, but I do make time for sleep and don't find myself one of those patrons of, I only, you know, bragging about how I only need four hours of sleep. No. Um, and then creativity. So long time ago, I, I learned the power of creativity. So I do everything from painting to little do-it-yourself projects. Probably the most common is gardening. I have a garden and just, and I like music. And just last night we went out to a concert by the beach and enjoyed some, some jammy, jammy music, which is very meditative in and of itself and kind of fun. And definitely, you know, having a good social network, my partner, Brian, my friends, my family, they're a big help and a part of my social self-care network. Um, I do think being of service to others, whether it's through my actual work or someone's actual work or just volunteerism or I, you know, one of my volunteer aspects of my life is my podcast with my colleague, Scott, where we focus on coping with anxiety and stress. And I learn from him and he learns from me. And then it's also like social self-care. And then I think some good old distraction techniques, which probably aren't the healthiest, like video games and TV and coffee and cheese, <laughs> which might be counterproductive sometimes, but it's still true. It's part of my self-care, my vices. Got to have some. That's great. Um, I love how you uh, pointed out that self-care uh, is multidimensional, like your yes. environmental self-care, your physical self-care. Yes. I love that you talk about going to the dentist, getting your medical appointments. Um, yes. I, you know, self-care is not just lying by the pool and the manicure no. and the pedicure. pedicure. No. It's no. so much more than that. Yeah. And the social network, the creativity, the intellectual pursuits and yeah. self-care takes uh, planning. It has to be intentional. Yes. You need time. I love how yes. um, in enriched your self-care um, program you. is. And you've always been a model for me Thank in self-care. Thank and, you. I, um, I honestly was just at the dentist getting a cleaning and that is some of the most uncomfortable self-care that I do, <laughs> but I advocate for myself and ask for numbing gel. So the experience is better. Okay. And then as I sit there in the, in the dental chair, I actually talk to my body and tell it, you know, I know this isn't the most comfortable, but I'm taking care of you and you matter to me. I actually talk to my body. Like it's a friend <sighs> when I'm getting a massage or uh, getting my hair done and they're shampooing my hair. I really bring my own, I call it my space suit. So it's imperfect. My body is so imperfect, especially as I age, but I talk to it like I would, uh, like a baby or a loving friend or something like that and thank it. You know, it's the way that I can speak. It's the way that I can think it's the way I can move around my environment. And I ask it to work with me through some of my healthcare issues, right? Like work with me, I'm working with you. And I think that's a part of my self-care too, is my self-talk is really strong. 
positive self-talk. I just love that. <laughs> I think I might have to try that one. So, um, the question I always ask everybody at the end, what advice do you have for individuals who are really struggling with that just intense grief and pain mm -hmm. after a sudden and unexpected loss? Yeah. I think the first thing I would say is just by listening to this podcast, I hope you realize you're not alone, that we can fool ourselves at the depths of despair and forget that there are loving, caring people in the world that want to support you. So number one, try to remember that you're not alone. Don't, don't fall prey to that distortion that you're alone. And, and then I would say that maybe some of the things that are causing you to feel alone are the differences in the way others around you are processing their grief, because there are often male, female, or age differences in the way people cope or process with grief. So if you're in community and feeling like, well, they're not doing it like I am, I must be wrong or they're doing it wrong, um, that is not accurate. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. There are real differences in the way people grieve and, and they're all okay. I think the only exception I would say to that is that we've seen that white knuckling through your grief, like you know when you grip the steering wheel so tight that your knuckles lose their blood flow and they become white, white knuckling through your grief, oh, I'll get through it just this year, just this month, or repression or avoidance about talking or writing about it or sharing your thoughts or feelings around grief is very ineffective um, and often just causes a delay in grief. Yes, you need to find safe places to do it, but, but just repression and avoidance are not effective long-term. They're not sustainable long-term. So I would suggest that you make an appointment with your grief in some way. If it's not with the therapist, do it, do it on your own, set a 30 minute timer, uh, look at photos, think of your memories, cry if you feel it coming on, or if you just have emotions and you can't cry, that's normal too. Just sit with the sadness or the worry or the regret or the anger or the relief, just feel and observe your feelings for that time rather than repressing them or shoving them down. And then when the timer, when the 30 minute timer goes off, um, take a nap or shower, splash water on your face or wash your hands, all while breathing and just kind of regrounding yourself. But that practice of 30, to, 30 minutes to an hour where you're actually making time to process your grief with or without a professional is so important. That's, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. So anything else you'd like to add? Um, I don't know how much you cover this, but I think I want to highlight, as since I mentioned the differences in grief, uh, young children grieve by playing. And so grief groups for other kids often help them more than, than talk therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Or Divorce and death are different. So avoid grief groups that mix divorce and death together. Most people say it's really unhelp uh, unhelpful whether you're divorced or, or going through divorce or death. It's just unhelpful. They're different kinds of loss. And then 
I'm a woman, you're a woman. I've learned a lot about men in grief over the years, hmm. including a neurologist taught this to me. And many of the men I work with have confirmed that men have this nothing compartment in their brain where they go to about two to five times a day and they think and do nothing. And it's really helpful for their coping and the exhaustion that comes with grief. But if you're in relationship with a man and you come along and you're like, oh, hi, honey, like what, what are you thinking? And they say nothing, like believe them. They're not <laughs> grieving wrong. You know, don't harass. Why are you thinking of nothing? You know, don't, don't harass them. Just if you need to talk to them, ask them, you know, when would be a good time for you to talk and let them have their nothing space. It's, it's bizarre as a woman whose brain never shuts off, my brain never shuts off. I have a no, I have no nothing compartment, none, zero. <laughs> but they often do, males often do. So <laughs> it's very helpful for the sustainability of your relationships with your children, your friends, and your coworkers, and your and your partner. <laughs> if you're in if you're in a um, you know different sexed relationship. So the nothing compartment really exists. <laughs> it does exist. They're not trying to hide it from you. They're just literally in the shutdown nothing space. Okay. It's just a couple of minutes, two to five times a day, they go there. I think my son <laughs> lives in there more often than not. Right. The, you know, the stats may have gone up, but yes. Yes. <laughs> Very good to know. Well, we are going to put in our notes uh, a link to your podcast. Oh, we'll great. also put um, the Dr. Warden's book in there oh, and um, any other um, references that you have. Um, and we also have a, a Facebook group just for yes. the podcast. So oh, we'll put all of that information in both the show notes and in uh, the Facebook group as well. And uh, give you an opportunity to uh, go in there and say hello also. So okay. it's been an absolute delight to have you with us today. And um, I want to say thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your expertise. It's just been a delight um, connecting with you over the years. And uh, look forward to that more to come. So thank you to Michelle Post, everyone, um, today. And uh, we'll be signing off for now. I have known Michelle for over 10 years and have had a chance to attend several of her self-care and grief trainings. Whenever I am in her presence, I always learn from her. I'm drawn to her commitment to her work and the passion she has for her clients. Together, we share similarities in how we work with our clients and the way we approach self-care with a multidimensional approach. Michelle has taught me so much about how to navigate grief on a personal level. She's allowed herself to be transparent about her experiences while maintaining a professionalism and the ability to hold space for her clients. I consider her to be a mentor, a colleague, and a friend, and we're so fortunate that she's providing services to individuals who've experienced a sudden death. If you want an opportunity to connect with Michelle, please join our Facebook group talking about the podcast Untethered with Dr. Levin. 
Michelle's contact information is available, along with the information about her podcast, and we've also included the citation for Dr. Warden's book. If you would like an opportunity to connect with Michelle, please join our Facebook group, Talking About the Podcast Untethered with Dr. Levin. Michelle's contact information is available, along with the information about her podcast, and we've also included the citation for Dr. Warden's book. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of Untethered, Healing the Pain After a Sudden Death. For help with a sudden and unexpected loss, please go to my website and sign up for my free mini course, where I will teach you about the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit www.fromgrieftogrowth.com to sign up. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For help with a sudden and unexpected loss, sign up for my free mini course where I will teach you the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit www.fromgrieftogrowth.com to sign up.